Hey, this is Pastor Allen. I'm the lead pastor here at First Baptist Church of Naples, and we are so happy that you have chosen to join us as we go through God's Word together. God's doing some amazing things here, and we pray that God's Word will transform you from the inside out. Our mission here is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ of all peoples. And our hope is, is that you are being a disciple that makes disciples. Now, if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us either in person or continuing online as we go into God's Word together every week. But if you are a member of another church, we don't want this to be in any way, shape, form, or fashion a substitute for you being connected to your local body. So our prayer is, is that God uses His Word to change you and to change others. So we pray that God will use you and this message for His glory. Have a great day. Take your copy of God's Word and turn to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, and we're going to begin in verse number 1. Mark chapter 6, verse number 1. Let's stand as we read God's Word this morning. Mark chapter 6, verse 1. The Bible says, And Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown, Nazareth, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could not... He could not do a mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went out about among the villages teaching. You may be seated. Have you ever heard of the name Clifton Herring? Uh, Clifton Herring, um, you know, it's basketball season, thank God, amen, especially after yesterday. Our football season at Kentucky ended uh, last uh, yesterday, at least for me. Um, but, but it's basketball season, and we're so grateful to have our FBA basketball team in our worship service this morning. Let's give them a hand, church family. <laughs> grateful to have them. Coach Stewart, appreciate them. They kick off this week with preseason. Praise God. Amen. That's God's sport, right? Basketball. Amen. Clifton was the, the, the coach of the Langley, Laney High School basketball team in Wilmington, North Carolina. And um, when he was 26, he, he was known by his friends as Pop. And when he was 26, he had tryouts for Langley High in 1978. And they, a 15-year-old sophomore, a, a young man by the name of Mike, showed up with about 50 other eager young boys to compete for only 15 spots, 50 for 15 spots on the varsity team. Uh, Pop watched all these young men play, and he watched Mike play. And here's what Pop said about Mike. He said that his ball handling skills were good, his shooting okay, but his defense was mediocre at best. He was just five foot ten, and he was skinny as a rail. Pop needed someone with size, and so he cut Mike from the varsity team to put Mike's best friend, who was six foot seven, on the varsity team. 
Pop didn't believe that Mike would be big enough to play for varsity. Didn't think he would be good enough to play for varsity. And unfortunately, he has been known in history as the coach who cut his heirness, Michael Jordan. See, in that time, he didn't see what we know. He didn't believe. And, and because of that, it, it haunted him for the rest of his life. Now, as, as haunting as that decision may have been for them, how many of you have ever made a decision in your life that you regret because you didn't believe, you didn't trust in God, you didn't believe that God could do something? And, and, and as haunting as maybe that regret is, how much more haunting is it for the people in Jesus' hometown who rejected Jesus? They cut Jesus from their life. See, we've been walking through the book of Mark and the miracle sections that we checks in that we just ended in chapters four and five highlighted the phenomenal power of Jesus and the importance of faith in Jesus. And just as chapters four and five spoke about faith, chapter six speaks about unbelief. As a matter of fact, there's a stark contrast between chapter 5 and chapter 6. Chapter 5 is faith. Chapter 6 is unbelief. Chapter, chapter 5 is trusting. And chapter 6 is fearing, opposing. See, the, the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is unbelief. And the Bible is a very honest book. And it, it doesn't just go from platitude to platitude, but it, it paints the reality of humanity. And, and Jesus has already taught that not everyone is going to believe in him. Not everyone is going to receive his gospel. And because of that, there will be tragic consequences. And so today, my prayer is, is that you would reject unbelief and that you would embrace belief. But in order for you to do that, I need you to understand what unbelief is. And so unbelief <clears throat> is opposition to Jesus that leads to missed opportunities to experience the presence and power of Jesus in your life. Unbelief is opposition to Jesus. In verse 1, the Bible says that he went from there. Jesus was just in Magdala along the Sea of Galilee, and he's traveled some 28 miles to the southwest to the town of Nazareth. Nazareth was his hometown. Now, he was born in Bethlehem, uh, but he grew up in Nazareth. It was a small village of around 150 to 500 people at most. It was known in Jesus' day as Hicksville. It was obscure. It was notorious in Jesus' day for not having anyone good come from Nazareth. And it wasn't even mentioned in the Old Testament. So Jesus, that was his hometown, a hometown of vagabonds and obscurity. And so the Bible says that Jesus left where they were at the lake. And the Bible says that the disciples followed Jesus with him to his hometown. Now think about this. They didn't get in a car. They didn't call an Uber. They didn't fly. They didn't get on a camel. They walked. And as Jesus and his disciples make it on their way to Nazareth, Jesus, as maybe they're talking to each other along the way, they are just talking about all the wonderful things that they've seen because Jesus was literally on fire. He was going from miracle to miracle around the lake. And he was so successful. Now the question is, why would Jesus go back home? Well, some say, well, maybe he was fulfilling the request of his mom to come see her. You know, good sons go visit their mother and right mothers. That's good for, for that to happen. Uh, it could be that he wanted to check on things at home. But I think that maybe there was a deeper reason for Jesus and his disciples going to the city of Nazareth or the town of Nazareth. And that was because Jesus wanted to teach his disciples a little bit about ministry. In verse 7, after Jesus leaves the town of Nazareth, he is going to send his disciples out two by two into the villages in 
Galilee to do ministry. And, and Jesus wanted to teach his disciples before he sent them out what real ministry is like. It was a reality check. Jesus did not want his disciples to have an unrealistic expectation when it comes to following God in a broken world. And, and what he's going to find and what they're going to find is it's not easy following Jesus. Amen? It's not easy. Our world is broken and, and people are fallen and people are evil and mean and not everyone is going to love you. Not everyone's going to accept you. Not everyone's going to say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. And, and, and as we get in our world in our day, we know that sometimes it's easy for us to live in a bubble. It's easy for us to live in a cocoon. But ministry is often messy and it's frustrating and it's often not as successful as you think it will be. And so Jesus takes his disciples to the town of Nazareth, Jesus' hometown, to have a reality check to be brought down a notch. And so in verse number two, it's Shabbat. And so Jesus, according to his custom, went to church. He went to synagogue. Now, every time Jesus goes to church in the book of Mark, something bad happens. There's trouble. There's conflict. Now, Jesus was asked to preach, and the Bible says that as Jesus was there waxing eloquently, preaching and teaching God's word, the people were astonished. Now, I think this astonishment was more of a huh than it was a wow. Because the people had heard of Jesus' power, his teaching and his miracles. But, but instead of welcome, welcoming their hometown hero with faith, they actually questioned him. They have at least five questions here. The first was, where did this man get these things? From, from what wisdom, what, what kind of wisdom was given to him? I mean, their short-lived amazement of Jesus turned straight to skepticism. They don't deny that Jesus did some things and said some things, but now they have some, some cynicism. They have some doubt. They have some contempt. They, they don't know where he got his knowledge from. And, and in their minds, it didn't come from God. So if it didn't come from God, maybe they are leaving the question open to say to themselves, well, maybe this is not from God. Maybe this is from the devil. But then verse 3, they ask this question, is this not the carpenter? The word carpenter there is the word technon. It means someone who builds and repairs things. Now, we think of Jesus and his stepfather Joseph as being carpenters. We think of woodworking shops, and, and we think of, of building things out of wood. But in Jesus' day, it was more likely to be a stonemason. And so it was a very respected profession, but yet it was very ordinary and unimpressive. And, and Jesus' name, I mean, in our day, Jesus... It's kind of revered type of name, but in, but in that day, it was a common name. It was a completely uh, well-used, well-circulated name in first century Israel. And so in the people's mind, as they're watching Jesus speak and listening to what he says, they're saying, well, that's little Jesus. I remember little Jesus coming with his dad, Joseph, to fix our toilet. I, I mean, that's little Jesus. I mean, I remember him. He was just outside working on the door. He's just a handyman's son. He can't be the Messiah. And then they say, is this the carpenter, the son of Mary? Now we read that and say, well, that's talking about Mary. Oh, but this is actually a put down. Because in that day, every young man was known by, by being the son of their father. And so Jesus' name in, in normal first century parlance would be Jesus bar Joseph, Jesus the son of Joseph. But, but this way of calling him the son of Mary was basically implying we don't really know who his daddy is. Maybe there's something fishy going on here. Because you can't get married in June and have a baby in August without something fishy going on. 
Maybe the calling him the son of Mary was a way of calling him a mama's boy. I don't know, but it wasn't a compliment. And then they said, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? This is the, everybody knew who Mary was. She's a hometown girl. And are the, is he not the brother of James and Joseph or Joseph, Simon and, and Judas? See, Jesus had four brothers. And so there's a view, uh, and he also had two sisters. There's a view in some that believe that, G, that Mary was a perpetual virgin, but she was not a perpetual virgin. She had uh, at least six other kids. And so they saw Jesus grow up. They, they knew what it was like to live with Jesus. And his family, the Bible says in chapter 3, verse 21, thought that Jesus was cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. They thought that he was crazy. And, and John 7 verse 5 says that they didn't believe that he was the Messiah. I mean, could you imagine what would it have been like to grow, to grow up with Jesus? I mean, do you imagine being, having your older brother being the Messiah, the Savior of the world? I mean, think about this. Everyone gets in trouble but him. I mean, how many times do you think James heard, you know what, James, why don't you be more like your brother Jesus? I mean, it would take a resurrection for his brothers to believe that he was God, which no doubt it would probably for you to think your brother or sister is God would take a resurrection as well. And so here they have this, this, this saying, hey, where did he get this from? I mean, this is, this is the hometown kid, it's just a nobody. And so the Bible says they took offense at him. The word offense is the word scandalized. They're scandalized by him. They were offended. He offended their personal sensibilities. They knew he was gifted. They knew he was a good teacher. He had a reputation that preceded him with all of his miracles, but they couldn't get their heads wrapped around the fact that this little hometown boy would be the savior of the world, the Messiah. The issue is that they, it's, it's not that they, they couldn't believe in him because they didn't know him. They wouldn't believe in him because they did know him way too well. Jesus was too familiar for them to be amazed by him. And so verse 4, Jesus uses a well-known proverb, quotes to his disciples a well-known proverb, which summarized would basically say this, a prophet is not honored in his hometown. That is that everyone everywhere accepts you except for those that are closest to you. Isn't that true? Like, it's been said that the definition of an expert is someone from out of town with a British accent. <laughs> right? I mean, isn't it like in our American mindset, if you watch somebody and they're commentating and they have a British accent, they're geniuses, right? <laughs> it's amazing sometimes as a pastor, I'll come and speak uh, to you guys and say something and it'll be just whatever. But somebody else will come in from out of town and they'll say the same thing that I say. And you'll be like, oh, wow, holy cow. That's just where we are because it's hard for us to listen to people we know. It's hard for us to listen to people that we're familiar with. That's why Plebeus the Syrian said in the fourth century that familiarity breeds contempt. You know, sometimes the closer you are to someone, the more you take them for granted and the less you value them and value their opinion. And so the same is true with Jesus. As one guy said, he says, familiarity can breed unbelief. Sometimes you can be so familiar with Jesus, know a lot about Jesus, but not really have a relationship with Jesus. And you don't really believe in him. I've got a friend who, who grew up in the church. Uh, he grew up uh, uh, knowing a lot about Jesus. His parents were devout believers. And, and if you ask him, what do you think about Jesus? He said, I got no issue with Jesus, but I have no relationship with Jesus. 
You know, we've talked a lot in the past two or three years about vaccines, and we're not going to get into that political debate. But there are different types of vaccines. And one particular type of vaccine is where, where they put a, a weakened form of the virus, a live weakened form of the virus or bacteria in that vaccine. And the reason why they do that is, is that that little, that little live part will, is just enough. It goes into your body just enough so that your white blood cells and your immune system can build up an immunity to the real thing. And so you get inoculated. You get just enough of that virus so your body can figure out how to overcome. Listen, nothing plus no one didn't equal everything. God had to set that up, right? Amen, right? Amen. I agree with you. Amen, amen, amen. I mean, I'm looking at me. Good job. All right. So the danger is this. The danger is, is that sometimes we can have just enough Jesus to be inoculated from Jesus. We can have so much familiarity with Jesus, but not have any faith in Jesus. That we can be exposed to Jesus just enough to be resistant to who he really is. You know, that's why you can go to church and you can go to Bible studies, and you can go to worship services, and you can be so familiar with Jesus and not really know who he is. And I think one of the, the problems of the reason why so many young people have left the church when they get older is because they, they know enough about Jesus to be dangerous, but not enough to be in love with Jesus, not enough to surrender their life to Jesus. And they've lost the wonder of who Jesus is. And as Americans, we are so spoiled because we have so much access to Jesus. That's why when you meet someone from a closed country, from a highly persecuted country that has become a believer, they are always reading the Bible. They are always in awe of Jesus. They are worshiping with their guts out because they can't get over the fact that Jesus is in their life. But we have so much of him, we're just numb to it. And we're numb to the beauty and the power of who he is. And sometimes we get bored with God. Kevin DeYoung put it best when he said this. He says, the temptation is real for, for many of us, Jesus is a once-in-a-while habit, but that's not New Testament faith. Not the faith that counts everything lost for the sake of knowing Christ. Not the faith that Jesus talked about in the parables, go sell everything you have and buy the field with a, that has a pearl. Not the kind of faith that clings to Christ as your only hope in life and death. Not the kind of faith that tells everyone what Jesus has done for them. See, a lot of people, even some of you in this room, I mean, this is a full room today. Many of you will maybe even confess faith in Jesus, but there is nothing going on in your life spiritually. Nothing. Just like the people of Nazareth, you appreciate the show. You're like, wow, it's great music. Wow, it's great this, great that. And you don't mind a Jesus who can fix a few problems in society. I mean, if people, you say, well, you know what? If people would just vote this way, they would be more like Jesus and they would be better. And it's fine. But you don't really want to believe in Jesus. You don't really want to worship Jesus. You don't really want to submit to Jesus. Why? Because you don't really believe in Jesus. And why do people not believe in Jesus? Because Jesus offends us. I mean, the reason why the Nazarites, his hometown, didn't believe in him is because Jesus offended them. He didn't fit in their categories. He didn't fit in their boxes. They had this view of what the Messiah would be and where the Messiah would come from. And he didn't fit what their expectations were of a Messiah. And, and the same is true in our world today is that Jesus doesn't fit our boxes. Jesus transcends our boxes and he transcends all cultures, ethnicities, and all morality because he's king, he's above it all. And Jesus offends 
the Western world because we don't like what Jesus has to say about money. I mean, everybody in our world thinks that success comes by how much money you have and how much you can spend it. I mean, people spend money that they don't have to impress people that they don't like. But Jesus says, watch out for greed. Watch out for this. He doesn't say watch out for lust. He doesn't say watch out for anger. He doesn't say watch out for murdering people. He says watch out for greed. Why? Because it's easy to see greed in others. It's hard to see it in yourself. Jesus offends that sensibility about exclusivity, saying that Jesus is not just one way to heaven, not just a good way to heaven, but he's the only way to heaven. He offends people with politics because in Jesus' world, it's the kingdom of God above political party. He offends people sexually because Jesus says one man, one woman for one lifetime. It's not a do whatever you want, however it feels. It's one man, one woman, one lifetime. He offends our sense of righteousness because we think that we're better than other people and we put others down to make ourselves have some self-importance. But what Jesus teaches is that you can't save yourself. And it offends literally our pride because Jesus says that we're all sinners who need his grace. Alice Huxley, who was an agnostic philosopher, yeah, as a matter of fact, he coined the term agnosticism. Agnosticism means that you, you, there is a God, but you're not really sure who that person is or really what that is. And he, he writes in his book in the uh, mid-20th century, A Brave New World. And here's what he said. He said, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning. For myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was, essential, was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality of Christianity because it interfered with our sexual freedom. At least he's honest, right? He says that there, there was one admirably simple method of justifying ourselves, agnosticism. And so I want to do what I want to do. And so if I believe in a God who tells me what to do, then I'm in trouble. And so I'm going to get rid of God so that I can become God and do what I want to do. It's willful unbelief. See, the issue of unbelief is not a lack of evidence. Now, we don't have all day to talk about all the evidences of God and Christ in history and the Bible, but also personal testimonies and, and so many other mountains of evidence that point us to the fact that there is a God and there is a creator and his name is Jesus. The issue is not a lack of evidence. The issue is a heart problem. It's an unwillingness to believe. The Bible says that the fool has said in his heart, not his head, but his heart, that there is no God. So unbelief is a calculating, hard-hearted rejection of evidence, whether it is intellectual, physical, historical, or spiritual. These Nazarites saw Jesus do miraculous things, and they heard him say miraculous words, and yet they clearly, even though they saw a work of God in Jesus, willfully turned away for one reason or another. Because unbelief is opposition to Jesus. And this thing in your heart that you don't want to believe, you don't want to submit, you don't want to serve, it's opposition to Jesus. It's not that you're indifferent to Jesus. You can't be in the middle. Either he is Lord of all or he ain't Lord at all. He, you either all in or you're all out. There is no middle ground. You are either in relationship with him or you are in rebellion to him. No middle ground. Belief is I surrender, Jesus, you're my king. Unbelief is I want to be God, I want to be king, I don't want to believe. It's one or the other. 
But here's the problem. Unbelief leads to missed opportunities. Unbelief is opposition, but it leads to missed opportunities. Missed opportunities to experience the presence and the power of Jesus. Verse 5, he could do no mighty work there. He wouldn't do it. Matthew chapter 13, verse 58, which is a parallel passage of this text, says that he could do no mighty work there because of their unbelief. Their unbelief was so strong that Jesus refused to do any mighty work there. Now, don't get the idea that faith is some sort of supernatural fuel that Jesus needs to do miracles. I don't know if you've seen the great theological movie, Elf. But with Jesus, there is no faith meter that has to go up so that Jesus can have enough power. Uh, unbelief is not kryptonite to Jesus. No, the, the limitation here was because of their unbelief, not Jesus's inability. Because they didn't trust in Jesus. They didn't come to Jesus for help. And, and that's why only Je Jesus only did a few miracles. He, he laid his hands on a few sick people because they believed in him. But Jesus would have done so much more in Nazareth for these people but their unwillingness to believe robbed them of it. David Garland, a commentator, said that the, the people of Nazareth already knew of Jesus' miracles, but refused to believe. Their cynicism prevented most from bringing their sick to him for healing. Doubt was, has trouble believing, but unbelief stubbornly refuses to believe. You know, I had a, when I was a chaplain for Stetson Basketball, the Hatters, we were horrible. Oh, gosh. We were. Uh, they needed a chaplain. All right? <laughs> they were that bad. <laughs> and there was a couple seven-foot guys from Australia that I shared the gospel with weekly. And they were stubborn. They refused. On their, their senior night, I gave them a Bible. And you know what they did? They left it. They didn't want it. Refused to believe. You know, the purpose of Jesus' miracles was to authenticate who Jesus was and reveal what Jesus has come to do. Jesus wasn't just there to put on a show. I mean, if you, if, like, if you were Jesus and you know these people didn't believe in you, wouldn't you want to do like some signs and wonders? Like, all right, you idiots, you don't believe in me? Bippity-boppity-boo. I mean, that's what we would do, right? But he wouldn't do that. Why? Because Jesus wasn't the, uh, some great showman. He, he wasn't someone there out doing parlor tricks. Jesus is the son of God. And he was calling people to faith and repentance. And Jesus could not, because he would not do miracles there and stay true to his mission. And what does this teach us? Oh, stay with me. What does this teach us? It teaches us that how we respond to Jesus matters. You know, every day in my life is a battle. There's a battle every day. It's a battle between faith and fear. It's a battle between belief and unbelief. And even, I'm a Christian, been following Jesus for 30 years. Even as a follower of Jesus, I can allow the seeds of unbelief to creep into my life. There are moments in which I don't trust Jesus to protect me. I don't trust Jesus to provide for me. I don't believe what I'm seeing there, that Jesus is better. And some of us in the room that we, we are clinging to certain sins and we don't submit to his authority. And when we do that, we are choosing unbelief rather than belief. And when you choose unbelief rather than belief, you're missing out on what God wants to do. Unbelief robs you of joy. I mean, the joy of seeing Jesus come through when things seems hopeless, 
That's joy. The joy of seeing God work in and through your, the church and, and others, it's joy. The joy of experiencing his presence in your life, that's joy. I mean, let me just say something. In our first service at 8, 8.30, I mean, there's a couple in our church, and, and they are a wonderful couple, the Jansen family, and they are foster and adoptive parents, and they just love on this, this, so many kids in Collier County. And, and this morning, one of their adopted daughters was baptized today. Oh my gosh, I almost lost it. She gets baptized at the end of the, at the as they get out of the baptistry area and change to come into worship, the little girl and, and her, her brother, who's not, not her biological brother, but is her brother because of adoption, they come in there, the dad's there, the mom's there, and they sit here on the front row and they start hugging and crying. I almost lost my soul right there. <laughs> the joy of seeing the power of the gospel. Whew. The Bible says that in his presence is the fullness of joy. See, when we choose unbelief, you know what we're choosing? We're choosing anxiety. We're choosing depression. We're choosing fear. We're choosing pride over love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. How many opportunities have we missed in our lives because we failed to trust in God? You know, God does business with those who mean business. He just does. Now, this isn't some sort of faith, prosperity, some name and claim it theology that if you believe in Jesus, that your miracles are, are going to happen by just the word that you say. Because there are many people who believe in Jesus and obey Jesus and suffer greatly. There are many who believe in Jesus and obey Jesus, and they don't always get what they ask for. But, there are, but everyone who believes in Jesus and obeys Jesus has Jesus. And how much of Jesus are we missing out of because of our unbelief? They kicked him out of his town. Kicked him out. We don't want you here. You know, as I said earlier, God has done some great things here at our church. He has. I mean, this, we're, over seven, we're, we're 76 years old as a church. And we've got so much ahead of us. But the reason why, especially in the past few years, that God has done so many great things here. You know why? Because some of you stuck around and trusted God when others left. And the faith and the faithfulness of many in this church has been blessed by God. We're experiencing that. But I believe just as God has done great things, he is going to do greater things, but it's going to require that we trust him to do it. I don't want it ever said of us that Jesus could not do a mighty work at First Naples because of our unbelief. Now, if you're here and you're struggling as a believer to believe, sounds oxymoronic, but it's the reality. What do you do? I want to give you some simple practical things. If you're struggling with faith, let me give you some, some things that you can do. Number one, you can pray. Tell Jesus you're struggling. I mean, you're now I lay me down to sleep prayers aren't gonna hack it. Your Mickey Mouse prayers aren't gonna increase your faith. You gotta be real with God. You gotta say, God, I don't like what's going on. I'm struggling. This doesn't make sense. I'm not happy. How can this happen? I don't know if I believe you. Be honest with Jesus. They don't sugarcoat it. Don't just use high church language. Be real, be raw, be vulnerable. That's how faith grows is when you tell it to Jesus. 
because he understands it. Pray. Read your Bible. You know, starting in the new year, we're going to challenge you next month to plan on reading the Bible with us as a church, and we're going to help you along the way, and we're going to encourage you with other resources. And one of the things, if you ever come to see any of the pastors here, and, they, and, they, and you need some spiritual advice, or you need some relational advice, or whatever, you know what the number one thing they're probably all going to tell you is? Read your Bible. Why? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. You got to get into God's word. If you want God's word to get in you, you got to get into God's word. Get off of Facebook, get in the book, right? <laughs> get off the gram and get into the Holy Bible. All right, get off TikTok, just get off TikTok, okay? <laughs> get into God's word. The times you feel least like reading are the times you need to read the most. Get in the word because what God does is through the channel of prayer, you speaking to God and through the channel of the word, the word speaking to you, the spirit of God takes the word of God and the prayers that you have to God and does a work of God in you. Three, share with other believers you're struggling. It's okay. That's why we have group ministry here. That's why we have community. That's why we have disciple making relationships here is because we need each other. Christianity has never been meant to live alone. It's a team sport, not an individual sport. We need each other. Fourth, is pursue Jesus. You say, well, if I'm struggling to believe in Jesus, how am I going to pursue him? Keep pressing. Be like Jacob. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. You just keep pursuing him because here's the truth. He's already pursuing you. You know, one of the best ways you can pursue Jesus is through worship. Do you understand that before I preach, it's not just Christian karaoke time? You understand that? It's also not a performance. I mean, as talented as our folks are, it's not a performance. The reason why we sing corporately before the preaching of God's word is to prepare our hearts for the word. To get caught up in who he is, to remind us who he is. I need a weekly, I need a daily, I need a minutely, that's a word, right? A minute, a secondly reminder every moment of who he is. And, and listen, that's the best thing you can do is to pray. And, and listen, whatever style, if you like Southern gospel, turn it up for the glory of God. If you like choir music, Brooklyn tab, turn it up. If you like contemporary, turn it up. Whatever it is, as long as it's gospel centered, theologically correct, Jesus exalting, crank her up and pursue Jesus. Because when you remind yourself of who Jesus is, faith rises up. I don't know if I made this next phrase up or not. I don't know who said it if somebody else said it, so I'll just say I said it. Right? That's how plagiarism works, right? But here's... So many things I want to say that I don't need to say. Be glad I don't say half the things that I want to say. <laughs> okay. Focus. You and I have as much of Jesus as we want. You and I have as much of Jesus as we want. Do you understand that Jesus wants to give you more of himself and more of his presence and more of his power in your life than you can imagine. 
And you and I will only have as much Jesus as we want. Because he won't force himself on us if we don't want him. You know what he'll do? He'll just move on. He'll go to the next place. That's what Jesus tells the disciples. He says, if you go to a town and they don't receive you, just shake the dust off your feet and move on. And that's the thing that I'm, I would be afraid of. That I'm satisfied with all the Jesus I have when I can have so much more. Let's end. Verse 6. The summary of all of this. The Bible says that Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. That word marvel is only found two times in connection with Jesus personally marveling. Every other time this word marveled is used in the Gospels, it's about how people responded to Jesus. The crowds responded to Jesus. They were amazed by Jesus. Only two times in the Gospels does Jesus marvel. Here and in Matthew chapter 8, where a Roman centurion, pagan, soldier, had a sick servant, friend of his, who was dying, and he comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, will you heal my sick servant that is dying? And you say, yeah, I'll come with you. And the, service is, or the, the centurion says, you don't have to come. Just say the word. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. Do you understand, church, that if Jesus wants to, he just has to say the word and, he can, and, and anything's possible? And so the Bible says in Matthew chapter 8, verse 10, that when Jesus heard this, he marveled. And said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. So the two times that Jesus marvels in the Gospels are this. One, when those who believe, when those who believe in him are not expected to believe in him. So Jesus marvels when those who aren't expected to believe in him believe in him. But then here in our text, he marvels at those who are supposed to believe in him, who were expected to believe in him, didn't believe in him. Isn't that funny? That's one of the things, the themes that you're going to find in Mark's gospel is that those you think would believe don't believe, and those you think would never believe, believe. I mean, we kind of see that in chapters 4 and 5. I mean, there are four miracles that we walk through. There is the, the miracle on the sea with the storm. There's a miracle of the demon-possessed man. There's a miracle of the woman with the disease. And there's a miracle of this daughter being raised from the dead. And in, in three of those four miracles, there's remarkable faith from people you don't think would have faith. I mean, this demon-possessed man, this Gentile, this crazy dude that was cutting himself and living in cemeteries and barking like a dog and quacking like a chicken... This guy gets saved, and guess what happens? He gets changed, and he wants to follow Jesus, and Jesus says, you can't come with me. you got to go out and do ministry to your hometown. And you would think, well, this guy said, well, I'm going to do my own thing. No, this guy goes out and proclaims all that God had done for him in Jesus. Faith. This destitute woman, woman had the issue of blood. She touches the hem of his garment and is saved. And her faith, Jesus says, made you well. A remarkable faith. And then you have this ruler of the synagogue that believed for a cure and got a resurrection. The only ones of the four miracles that didn't believe, didn't have faith, but yet received a miracle. Who were they? The disciples on the sea. They, they thought they were drowning. They thought they were dying. They said, Jesus, don't you care that we're dying? They didn't believe. They were struggling. And here's what I think was happening. Stay with me. I'm almost done. I promise. I think what was happening in Nazareth was this. I think Jesus was teaching his disciples about 
faith and the tragedy of unbelief. And he was preparing his disciples for when he was gone for the mission ahead by asking them, do you really believe in me? I think that this opportunity in Nazareth was for them to examine themselves. And this morning in Naples, this message is given so that we would all examine ourselves. The one question that has permeated through my mind all week has been this, does Jesus ever marvel at my unbelief? Is he ever amazed at all the times he has come through and yet I don't believe in him like I should? You know, some of you have a relationship with Jesus and you've been saved, you've been a Christian for a long time and you legitimately are, but you still struggle with doubt. And because of that, the seeds of unbelief are growing in your life and it's depriving you of the blessings of enjoying his power and presence in your life. Some of you have come to church and you've heard the gospel a million times. You could tell the gospel, but yet you don't believe. Here's what I want to say. Even if you have refused to believe in Jesus in the past, you can believe in him today. Don't miss your opportunity. Don't miss the opportunity to experience his power and his presence in your life. The Bible says in John 1 that Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. But to all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. See, the opportunity of a lifetime is only as good as a lifetime of the opportunity. My hometown is Somerset, Kentucky. My mom and dad grew up there. They told me about this old guy who was a used car salesman. His name was Shorty Smalls. <laughs> he wasn't very tall. Shorty would get a husband and wife or get somebody there and show them a car, try to close the deal. As he was closing the deal, my dad, because he bought one of them from him. Shorty would get on the hood of the car or the truck and he would and Shorty would look at the people and he would say, you know what that was? I say, what? He said, that's opportunity knocking at the door. He sold a lot of cars. <laughs> right now, that beating in your chest, it feels like it's about to explode. Those butterflies in your stomach, that's Jesus. He's knocking at the door. It's an opportunity to trust him more. And my prayer is today that you would trust him more. If you're here and you need to be saved, you need to give your life to Jesus, Jesus is here and he will save you. You can call on his name. If you have been saved and you trusted him as your savior, but you're struggling with unbelief, then do what I say. Say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And my prayer is, is that God will do mighty works here because we believe. And I'm asking for him to do greater things than ever before. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for 
Jesus. And God, like that man, prayed in Mark chapter 8, I believe, but Lord, help my unbelief. God, for those in this room or those watching online who do not know you as Savior, God, today, would they surrender themselves to you? Would they trust in you as their Lord and Savior? Would they give their lives to you? And Lord, for those of us who are your children, increase our faith. Lord, we love you. We need you, God. We desperately need you. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing. Lord, we need you. Thank you for joining us as we go through God's Word together. I pray again that God will transform you from the inside out. So as we say here at first, you have come to church. Go out and be the church. Have a great week of worship. We can't wait to see you soon.